This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 146, Murder. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God told Noah that thousands of years ago, and the value of human life has not diminished since then. Unfortunately, our valuation of it has in many cases. This week we will discuss whether Christians actually murder other Christians, and if so, how. The secret to staying out of a sex-drug murder cult, another reason not to stop for gas in Louisiana, and the only board game we own based on the work of a serial killer. Let's start with what I've been preaching. As a rule, I am a big fan of taking the words of the Bible literally, at face value. There is plenty of figurative language in the Bible, of course, but most of it is so self-evident as to not even be worth mentioning. There are exceptions to that, though. There are figures of speech that are dropped here and there in regular narratives and in regular doctrinal passages that are so perplexing and so outlandish as to more or less force me to believe it's almost certainly a figure of speech. One example of that is in James chapter 4. In the first couple of verses, James writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Going through verse number three there. The word murder kind of jumps out at you here in this context, or at least it jumps out at me. Could it be that Christians in the first century were actually killing people? I say no. I could be wrong on that. It seems like if there was a rampant murder problem in the churches of the first century, we'd have more than one reference to it. I think it's far more likely that this is a figure of speech, that people were being murdered, yes, but not in a literal shedding of blood sort of way. And if you're asking what other ways there are to kill people, I'm glad you did, because there are numerous ones. I'll discuss three of them here today. The first one, perhaps the most obvious and perhaps the most relevant, is the idea of killing people's reputation. This is the way that I've heard this passage explained the most over the years. In Proverbs chapter 20, and verse number 19, one of the many admonitions against gossip in the text, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. It's very easy to destroy a person's reputation, especially in the age of the internet. Why would we do something like that? Well, there are any number of reasons that we don't have time to elaborate on, but you know it as well as I do. Gossip is a real thing, and there are real people who do, in fact, slaughter their brothers and sisters in Christ in terms of reputation. It's not right. It's not good. It is certainly contrary to the notion of the body of Christ. The same thing goes for adultery. We are told in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, that a husband is one body with his wife, that they are one flesh, as is the case going all the way back to Genesis 2.24. How can I think about breaking that up? How can I insert myself into a situation where I'm destroying a family? I'm destroying a relationship. Well, these days, if you're talking about two consenting adults, there is going to be a significant portion, probably a majority of our society, that's going to just kind of wink and move on. Even say it's a good thing. You owe it to yourself to do what is good for you. You owe it to yourself to pursue your one true love, however you may want to define that. And the third party involved in this is really irrelevant in the big picture. 
if we are really in a place where the feelings of our fellow human beings are irrelevant, regardless of who the human being is, we have shown that we've lost our way. We're willing to murder a marriage. We're willing to murder a covenant relationship bound before God simply because we feel like it. And I'll say a word or two about gambling here also. I hate to use the word life as if taking somebody's money is taking someone's life. But there is a very real sense in which you can destroy somebody by taking their money. In our society, that is not exactly approved of, but it's certainly sanctioned in certain environments. Again, when we're talking about consenting adults. 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, all sorts of evil, and we know that to be true. We can find ourselves in a position where we can exploit a brother in Christ or a neighbor, whoever it happens to be. They're willing to plop down their money. Why shouldn't I be willing to take it? Because this is a person who is destroying himself. I don't want to take a big dogmatic position on whether betting lunch at the golf course or playing poker for pennies is a violation of the love thy neighbor law. But certainly we would all agree it comes to a point where my behavior, taking money, taking a livelihood out of my neighbor's pocket, even taking it out of my brother's pocket, shows that I have no regard for that person. The things that I do, especially for my brethren, are supposed to be for edification. The text says in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, I'm supposed to be helping my neighbor. I'm supposed to be lifting them up, not tearing them down. If they are willing to let me tear them down, that doesn't mean it's okay for me to not love my neighbor. God calls me to act like a neighbor always. If my neighbor doesn't care whether I do or not, that doesn't mean I'm not obligated. Murder isn't okay simply because the party being murdered doesn't necessarily disapprove. God's standard is higher than that. This is what I've been reading. Almost 50 years after the fact, we may as a culture finally have gotten to the point where the Manson family requires a bit of explanation. I was very young at the time, of course, and my parents sheltered me from such things as is appropriate. But over the years, I gradually came to realize who Charles Manson was and what his family was all about. I got a lot more information than I'd ever found before by reading Lee Wheel's book, Hunting Charles Manson. It's a very detailed telling of how Manson came to be who he was, the circles that he ran in, how he recruited people into his little cult, the force of his personality, how it was possible for him to get this crew of young people around him, mostly women, who would go out and do these horrible deeds, whether it was uh, an effort to overthrow society as a whole, whether it was just scoring money for drugs, whatever it happened to be, it was terrifying. And the entire nation, especially California, was on the edge of their seat, hoping this thing would finally be resolved. And of course, it ultimately was. Manson died in prison a few years ago. Even to this point, there is still a lot of debate about exactly how this cult came to be, exactly what Manson was guilty or not guilty of, etc. That's far more than we are prepared to get into in this context here. But I would like to talk a little bit about the Manson family and how they came to be. In case you're concerned at some point that your children or your grandchildren might get caught up in some kind of crazy cult that would get them embroiled in sex and drugs and violence and ultimately destroy themselves. Let me give you the keys, as I understand Miss Wheel's book, 
to avoiding that kind of circumstance. And it's not difficult, by the way. The first thing is, have a life. These young people who came into Manson's orbit were attracted to him because he knew what he was doing, because he was intelligent, because he had that aura, that charisma that drew people to him and convinced them that my life is okay in his hands. From the outside, looking in, that seems insane. In fact, you might even be able to make a clinical argument that it was insane. But what it basically is, is this craving of human beings to mean something, to have relevance, to have purpose. God makes us with that in our hearts. And if you don't have that, if you don't have direction for your life, if you're not doing something with yourself, it's very easy to fall into the trap of people who provide something for you, who offer to make your life meaningful somehow. Now, we as Christians, of course, are forearmed against such things because Jesus is our life. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, a passage that I turn to constantly seems like, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is saying here that we commit ourselves to Jesus and trust that he is watching over our souls and that he is providing for us in a way that we never could have provided for ourselves. That is not fully realized in this earth, and we come into that with our eyes open. We realize that that is the case, but we believe that Jesus is in heaven waiting for us and that these great things that he has for us are going to be completed when we reach him in heavenly realms. In the meantime, Christ is our life here on earth. We're crucified with Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. It's Christ living in us. It's as though he were inhabiting our body and that we're carrying out his responsibilities, his duties, his preferences while here on earth. That's an idealized picture, of course. We fail innumerable times in this process, but that's what we're trying to do. That is our task. That is our life. If we have that, then we are almost certainly going to be able to ward off any kind of efforts to give us a lesser and ultimately self-destructive life. Have a family also. Have someone who genuinely cares about you. They're called the Manson family for a reason. These people who gravitated toward Manson felt at home with him. When you see details about what the hippie lifestyle in general was in Southern California in that period of time, and especially the lifestyle that Manson was adopting, living in the middle of nowhere, no running water, no hygiene at all, really, you wonder how people could possibly be interested in that. And this is why, because there was a family relationship, because people genuinely believed that Manson cared about them and the people around Manson cared about them. They were a family. One example after another of these Young people, especially women, who came to Manson and found a home with him came from dysfunctional families. They were running away from their family. Because they could not find love in a physical family, they found love with Manson. Again, we as Christians are armed against this. We should not fall victim to this sort of thing because we have a family. We have God's family. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 19 through 22 Paul writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in which you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 
We're not strangers and aliens anymore, he says here. We have a place. We have a home. The household of God is a term that's used several times in the New Testament to describe our relationship in the body of Christ. We are family. We have association that empowers us and ennobles us and brings out the best in us rather than bringing out the worst. And thirdly, have a clue. Realize that bad people are out there doing bad things. A few people were able to spot Manson for who he was and avoid him immediately, despite their upbringing, despite their cravings, despite their ambiguous morality. They still saw that Manson was a horrible person and that he was going to destroy them if they gave themselves over to him. We have to realize that there's evil in the world. Bad people do bad things all the time. When Jesus sent the 12 out in Matthew 10, 16, he tells them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There is a sense in which we remain innocent from sin. We stay aloof from sin. Sin confuses us. Sin perplexes us. It repels us. But that doesn't mean we don't understand what sin is. We realize that sinful people do sinful things, and the more we make excuses for that, the more we accommodate that, the more likely we are to adopt that. We need to realize the destroying influence that sinful people have and avoid it as much as we possibly can. This is poison. This is death. We need to stay as far away from it as we can. This is what I've been hearing. The Hammonds family has driven through Jennings, Louisiana any number of times over the years. It's on I-10 between Florida and Texas. I'm pretty sure we've actually stopped in Jennings once or twice for bathroom break or lunch or whatever. If we had heard of the Jennings 8 at the time, we would have made other arrangements. The Jennings 8 or the Jeff Davis 8, named after Jefferson Davis Parish where Jennings is, these are terms referring to a series of killings 15 or so years ago. Killings that have never been solved, by the way. No one has even been prosecuted for these crimes. Eight horrific slayings, young women killed and dumped into the swamp. It's about the worst that our society has to offer. And I would like to think that it is a horrific exaggeration of our culture here in America, and I think to a certain degree it is, especially considering the way that these cases were prosecuted or not prosecuted might be a better way of phrasing it. To give you an idea of what was going on back in the day, a few years after the slayings in 2014, the national average for cases successfully closed by law enforcement in the United States was 64%. The rate in Jennings, Louisiana was 7%. Not 70, not 17, 7%. A kind way of looking at this is that law enforcement was grotesquely incompetent at the time. There is considerable thought that law enforcement was actually part of the problem, that they were complicit and perhaps even responsible for these killings. We may never know for sure. But it brings up the question of murder in the broader sense in the United States. It's fair to say that we have a murder problem. All kinds of different causes can be blamed for this. But I'm going to suggest one that may make us somewhat uncomfortable because it goes directly to the heart of what it means to be an American. And I'm not talking about gun rights here. I'm going to refer to two particular phenomena that are especially characteristic in Jennings, but to a certain degree are part of life in America as a whole. The lack of dominant authority and the lack of a culture that encourages conforming to societal norms. I'll touch on those individually. 
In Jennings, clearly the authority involved was incompetent to a grotesque degree. But in a larger sense, we in America don't like being bossed around. We don't like being told what to do. We're rather proud of this notion. Saudi Arabia, for instance, has extremely totalitarian approach to government. Saudi Arabia doesn't have a murder problem. People in Saudi Arabia are worried if they kill somebody, they're going to get their head chopped off within about 15 minutes of the deed. I'm not suggesting that we should trade places with Saudi Arabia necessarily, but this is part of the culture that we're living in, a culture that we've chosen for ourselves. In Japan, there is an extreme conformity culture. You are required to blend into your surroundings. You're required to go along and get along. Murder is just plain rude in Japanese culture. And Japan doesn't have a murder problem. We in America love being individuals. We love going our own way, doing our own thing, not blending in. Such was the case in Jennings also. The women involved in this were, generally speaking, caught up in the sex culture, in drugs. The environment they ran in encouraged getting away from societal norms. We like not conforming. We like being our own person. And some people, going their own way, are going to go in ways that we don't want them to go. I'm not suggesting that this means other lifestyles are better than American lifestyles. I'm saying the lifestyle that we choose, the culture that we choose, has a major impact on what happens in our day-to-day lives, in the world that we live in. And we as the body of Christ need to push back somewhat against this American ideal, against flaunting authority, as it were. In Colossians 1.18, the Apostle Paul tells us that he, Christ, is also head of the body of the church, and that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus comes first in our entire life, everything that we do. We are utterly submissive to him. That's not a very American way of looking at things, but that is the only way we can be in a kingdom, and our king is Jesus. The same thing goes for this conformity notion that we push back against. We need to get over that. There is a very real sense in which we as Christians voluntarily and, in fact, eagerly surrender our individuality so that we can embrace the culture of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 and following, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. When we shake off the shackles of sin through the grace that is available in Jesus Christ, we have this notion that we can just do whatever we want to do. That because we are free, we can act however we want. We can value whatever we want. We might constrain ourselves somewhat in this. But the notion of surrendering our own free will for the benefit of the greater good, for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes that's the furthest thing from my mind, and we need to fix that. The biting and devouring and consuming of brothers and sisters in Christ is a direct result of this lack of love, of this failure to see ourselves as part of an organic whole rather than simply a bunch of individuals out for their own benefit. I'm not suggesting that Christians left to themselves will engage in these killing sprees and there's going to be blood in the church buildings everywhere. But we are suggesting that what Paul said here is true. Lack of love among brothers and sisters in Christ winds up destroying local churches. With God's help, we can avoid that. We can push back against this selfish 
attitude, push back against this rebellious attitude, and accept the rule that Jesus has for our life and go where he is taking us so that we can inherit the things that he has waiting for us. It's a wonderful life that he offers to us, but in many ways it's absolutely incompatible with the life we're trying to make for ourselves. We need to choose, and we need to choose wisely. This is what I've been playing. I mentioned another context, the World's Fair of 1893 in Chicago. What an amazing sight it must have been, seeing Scott Joplin and Harry Houdini and John Philip Sousa and Frederick Douglass and all of the great minds and talents of the turn of the century America. And not surprisingly, people came from all over the place, all over the country and all over the world to see what was going on there. A man named H.H. Holmes took advantage of that situation. He built himself a house, an amazing house, huge with many, many rooms, and turned it into a boarding house of sorts within a couple of miles or so of the fairgrounds. People came looking for a place to stay, and he offered them a place to stay. They moved in, and he killed them. Not only did he kill them, he killed them in a variety of weird and crazy ways. The house itself essentially was a weapon. There were gas chambers, falling implements. There were slippery slides that took people into the basement. Any number of ways that people could die and did die in his house. Apparently, he was trying to take their money, try to profit somehow. Turns out that H.H. Holmes, or whatever name he happened to be going by at any given moment, was a bit of a career criminal. And to pay for his criminal misdeeds, he killed a whole bunch of people. This is America's first mass murderer. And he is celebrated, if you pardon the expression, in a game, the full title of which is Crimes in History, H.H. Holmes's Murder Castle. We just call it H.H. Holmes or Murder Castle when we play it in the Hammond's house. We love this game. It's, it's really cool. It's quite, I hate to say atmospheric because that might give the wrong idea, but you are a tenant in this house and you're trying to avoid homes. You're trying to go around from room to room and collect various things that complete your life's journey or however you want to look at it. And you'll encounter trap doors, you'll encounter slippery slides, you'll encounter dead ends and all sorts of crazy wild rooms that may mean your death in the game. I'm sure somebody out there is saying, well, that does it. I'll never do a Verbo or an Airbnb again. That's not my purpose. I'm not trying to change your traveling habits. What I am trying to emphasize is there are evil people out there who will do you harm because they feel like doing it, because they have their own interests at heart, and they will run you over, literally, if it means accomplishing what they want to accomplish. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul gives us a different idea, going back to the love your neighbor aspect that we touched on before. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus offers us a different lifestyle. He offers us a way out of this world. We don't get all the way out of it in the flesh, of course, but at least in part, while we wait here, we accept a different kind of culture, a culture that's not defined by selfishness, one that embraces love and understanding and support 
that seeks the welfare of others instead of simply one's own welfare. We need to wake up to the world that is around us. Kind of like you're walking around in a house that's full of trap doors and other kind of impediments, some visible, some not visible. Realize that life is dangerous. Evil people mean us harm and are actively in pursuit of our destruction. Paul continues in the same context in verse 11, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Leave that world. Leave that lifestyle. Do not adopt the shortcuts to personal welfare, personal accomplishments that the devil offers to us. Wake up from sleep. Accept the dangers of this world and avoid them. Embrace a different lifestyle. Shun the deeds of darkness here, he says. Put on the armor of light. And realize, especially in this context with regard to the Myrtle Castle, the world is very creative. The world is going to trick you. What may seem safe, what may seem reasonable, what may seem, in fact, even compatible with your lifestyle in Christ can be anything but. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11 tells us that we are not ignorant of the schemes of Satan. Well, I hope that's the case. I hope that we are aware how tricky, how deceitful he is. He's the deceiver from the beginning, remember. Adam and Eve weren't trying to get into trouble in the Garden of Eden. They were trying to avoid trouble. And all of a sudden, they listened to the devil, and they've lost the garden. The same kind of thing is going to happen to us if we are not careful. The devil is going to trick us, con us, and he is successful with most people. Don't fall victim to that. Be aware of his schemes. Think things through. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. If your conscience is trained in Jesus Christ, if your conscience is trained by a study of his word, if you have spent quality time around his people, you'll be able to ferret these kind of things out. You'll be able to see the traps ahead of time and avoid them. If you find yourself halfway in a trap, you'll catch yourself before it's too late and you'll be able to get out of it. But it only works if we truly prioritize Jesus and the things of Jesus. If we stay out of the murder castle as much as we possibly can, and if we find ourselves in it by accident, we get out as quickly as we can. We can't continue to walk in the light if we insist on walking in darkness at the same time. So choose light, reject darkness, and find the life that Jesus has waiting for you. You have been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.